and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's finished crawling into car trunks and walking out unscathed, it's John McMahon. <laughs> it was dark in that car trunk. This show does love itself a human in a car trunk. Oh, uh, car trunk, we got a red flashlight, like, it's just like all the things are happening. What what was the point of the red flashlight? Do we know this? Is that some super spy craft that we don't understand? Or? I think it's a it doesn't um, it like there isn't glare right so right. like you wouldn't see the red flat you wouldn't see the red light like peeking out of the cracks. Got it. So it like offers light, but it's like very contained. Well, Danielle's really been working <laughs> on the dossiers she's been putting together, as you can tell. Like, I like include into that UV spectrums of various color lights. <laughs> I like it. I like oh it. Oh my god! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this this red light within the car trunk happened within Friends, American season one, episode five. Comment C O M I N T, which stands for Communications Intelligence. And if you thought we were going to skip talking about what the title of that episode has to do with the major themes we're going to talk about. You are wrong. (laughs) You would be wrong. Um, And you probably didn't think that at all. So this episode of The Americans is directed by Holly Dale and is written by Melissa James Gibson. And I think Danielle is going to read us the trusty IMDb summary. Yeah. So summary from IMDb tells us that a crucial agent crumbles under emotional distress and threatens to topple a valuable network of KGB informants. Professionally, Philip and Elizabeth are tasked with infiltrating the FBI's new communications encryption system, while personally, they are forced to grapple with one of the darker aspects of life as a spy. And I feel like... I feel like here they're they're sort of doing some of our work for us where it's like, how do the professional and the personal intertwine in this episode? <laughs> Look at that. I am IMDB has been learning from the show that actually no one's heard yet. We're still recording episodes before this we've ever <laughs> yeah. released an episode. We're also not clear if anyone's ever gonna hear them, but like that's <laughs> a whole true. other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So what what personal political dynamics did you observe in this episode, Danielle? Yeah, I think the one that jumps out that jumped out at me first and foremost was the sort of husband-wife dynamics that we get both between Philip and Elizabeth, but also then between Stan and Sandy. Um, And just how there is like aggressive masculinity coming out of Philip, which I don't feel like we get from him so much in the first four episodes. Only in the very first episode, right? Only when he finds out that the colonel they had abducted was, had sexually assaulted Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There was something about, so he sort of like hulks out. Yeah. About like Elizabeth yeah. being uh being beaten when she's like basically on assignment. Um and then there's the the sort of the Stan and Sandy dynamics where Stan is learning Russian, which is doesn't seem to be like super necessary for his job. So there was earlier the I think it was the previous episode three or episode four where there's twelve seconds of him and Chris Amador talking about learning Russian. So seemingly he's supposed to do it for his job, but we as an audience know that he is in fact learning Russian to try to impress Nina. So on the one hand, we get this um, like 
so like a hyperflex of the patriarchal yeah. dynamic with Philip's anger. And then on the other hand, we get this other weird sort of like, I would, I would also like categorize it under patriarchy, except that it is not about the relationship between Stan and Sandy. It is more about the relationship between Stan and Nina. Yes. And so like, not only are the husband wife dynamics like super interesting in this episode, but there's also like so much happening with gender and gender dynamics that just like, I don't know, it really, it really frustrated me to be honest. Yeah. This is an episode that is entirely about male rage and sexual violence yeah. and male rage expressed through sexual violence and um, superficial comedy or, um, or like polytests that covers over that male violence and, and even jokiness that covers over that male violence. So there's a scene early on in the episode before we get any of the various scenes of male violence in this episode right. where Elizabeth is taking the kids to school, Stan and Philip have come back from, from racquetball. They are very much like bro jocular, you know, joking against one another, being hyper competitive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the show is like, ah, ha, ha, isn't this funny? Elizabeth kind of calls Philip on how, as you pointed out when we were talking before the episode, Danielle calls out Philip and how close he seems to be getting to Stan. And then the entirety of the rest of the episode are these various scenes of sexual assaults or other forms of gendered violence. Yeah, and the Philip calling, uh, rather Elizabeth calling Philip out on his relationship with Stan, she says to him, like, you're, you're getting too close. And he's like, you know, maybe we'll, we've already been able to use information that he's given us. Maybe we'll be, maybe we'll get more. And yeah. she's basically like, I see the game that you're playing and like, that's nonsense, right? Like she calls him out on like attempting to sort of explain away the relationship mm -hmm. as a simple like mark or something like that. And I thought that that was fascinating because that's one of like Elizabeth just consistently to me like is sometimes in, in ways that are cliche, but oftentimes in ways that, that speak to me, like she's just this picture of a strong woman and like not even taking Phillips nonsense about like, Ooh, like I'm just getting close to him because of the mission. She's like, uh, hello, absolutely not. So there was something powerful. There was something empowering about that, that like otherwise is, is sometimes missing from, from that dynamic. There is. And another element that I think stands out about the way the show engages or is commenting on the gendered violence it's depicting is that I think all of the characters, with the exception of the security guy beating Elizabeth, mm -hmm. right? So Philip, Stan, and Vasily Nikolaevich, right? yeah. another character of male violence in this episode, um, all of them have the plausible deniability of this is part of my job. This is a thing that I have to do. I can't help this from happening. Like, yes, I'm being, you know, as Philip keeps saying over and again, I'm going to be your husband in this and commit male violence against this person who committed violence against you because I am your husband. Yeah. And yet at the same time, whether it's the relationship with Stan, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's Vasily, um, taking advantage of Nina, whether it is Stan quasi quote unquote, 
questionably seducing Nina, um, right? Nina learning Russian for her. These, right? But all of them get the chance to say to to absolve themselves of responsibility. Yeah. Well, and we even get that from Stan when um, he when in the second meeting with Nina, he's like, "How did you get him to talk?" And she just she, says, I gave him I a gave blow him a blowjob. Like, like you told me to. Right. And and Stan is aghast. And I think like, yeah, plausible deniability, I think, is one way to think about it. Or I think the other way that maybe connects to some of the other threads we've pulled from earlier episodes, thinking back about like truth and lies is like willful ignorance, right? Like, yes, yes like, definitely. And I think this is when Elizabeth calls out Philip when Nina is like point blank, you told me to give him a blowjob. It is these women like refusing to like allow willful ignorance to play out. And I like, again, I think like in an episode where women really do take like literal beatings, those are moments where there is some, some like, where where the relationship to like the truth affords a certain semblance of power it does and nina becomes the most subject to these patriarchal forces because in a way that she does talk back to stan and she says and i got the line wrong she says i sucked his cock just like you told me to yeah and stan's like never i wouldn't and Nina's like, of course, that's what you were suggesting. Yeah. Do, right. So she's going to refuse any of Stan's bullshit on some level. Right. And, you know, she's like questioning how much she could ever trust him. Stan says, we have to keep working for the good of all. And Nina had to scoffs we. <laughs> right. Um, at the end of that scene. And so she does understand herself to be in the material conditions where she can push back in that way. Yeah. But the combination of Stan's political persecution of her. Yes. Plus Vasily Nikolaevich's power over her, plus her need to survive. Yeah. Right. Mean that she does not have that kind of uh, immediate response. She doesn't feel like she has that immediate response available to her. Right. When she is forced or coerced, however we want to say it, by Vasily Nikolaevich to suck his cock. Yeah. Because we that happens twice, right? We get two right. scenes of that in this, right. in this episode. And, like, I think that your point about survival is critical here, right? Because, like, in thinking about what the way in which violence and coercion are like force Nina and like to some extent Elizabeth, right? Like they, they, but Nina is probably a better example of this force Nina into like weighing the like shitty and shittier options. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like that there is something about, I think like that's something the show does really well in forcing us to rec- forcing the audience to recognize sort of the conditions under which someone could like would make the decisions that Nina is making, right? Like yeah. these all seem like inc- in- incredible. It doesn't seem implausible that someone would be caught sort of in like in aspiring in the way that she was implausible that it caught via caviar but like fine we'll we'll explain that away but then like 
the materiality of her body is possibly the only currency that she has to like, like to affect her own survival. Mm -hmm. Right. And thus the parallel there that you just made, I think sets, or that sets up a parallel with regards to Nina and Elizabeth, right? Because Elizabeth is like, you know what? I, I could have, you know, I could have killed in five seconds, right? This man who beat me yeah. with the belt. We watched her do it last week. Yes, we do. We did. And sh- her version of that survival is that she could not. And she says this very, very directly to Philip when Philip gets all overprotective, roid rage husband guy. Yeah. Well, at. However, I feel like they're the like one wrinkle in all of this, right? Is it seems like Elizabeth is affected by she definitely is killing the the like agent at the end. And so which leads me like I have some doubts about whether she could or will always be able to take care of it when necessary. Yeah. The argument between Elizabeth and Philip in the basement, when she comes back or maybe it's in the bedroom and then they go to the basement. The, right, well, cause, cause Phillip, he Phillip, goes to like Phillip get the goes gun to the basement from the... to get a gun and a silencer from the I was like, Oh, we're back to the basement. Um, cool. 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 <laughs> the argument that they have is, is just brilliantly written and brilliantly staged and brilliantly shot and all of the things that you write. So it gets, you know, and it goes on for a while, right? Philip, how can you say it's fine? Elizabeth, you, I don't need you to fight my battles. Philip, somebody beat my wife, Elizabeth, you're not my, my daddy, daddy. I know. Right? <laughs> and the way that Carrie Russell gives that line to Philip is incredible. Yeah. Um, well, and then, the what do you think husbands do right right which comes a i'm bit. your husband what do you think husbands do yeah and then elizabeth i wouldn't know yeah right end scene well and then right if i'm if i'm not mistaken shortly after that we get the scene between stan and nina and it cuts Nina, immediately to that yeah. scene. Or maybe maybe it was a commercial break and then... Yeah. So we cut to that scene. And the the most powerful line in that scene is where Nina to Stan is like, you don't know anything about me. Which is, in, in effect, right, what Elizabeth is saying to Philip. And, like, we're watching them start to get to know each other. But there is, like, this interesting, like, uh, presumed intimacy... Yeah. That Philip and Elizabeth are very much working through. That Stan and Sandy are like drifting away from, and that Stan is seeking or or pretending to engage in with Nina. And Nina is not like I mean, like Nina is such a fascinating character, and I like I can't wait to see like what else happens with her because the like you don't know anything about me and how did you get him to talk? It's just like, they're like that whole exchange is amazing. And I don't think Danielle, we've had the chance to really shout out the actor Annette Mahendru who plays Nina uh, in the Americans for the acting that she is doing another great face actor. 
um, throughout throughout the entirety of the whole thing. A great I, face actor. I also shamefully realized I had given her the wrong patronymic, thus calling attention or doubling down on the patriarchy of the patronymic. <laughs> um, no. It's not as I we're gonna even. I mean, if I say it more, I'm gonna keep getting it wrong. It's Nina Sergeyevna. Uh, is her patronymic. So that means that her, her father's name is Sergey. Indeed. There's a, there's another Nina scene. So we, that is where the one time she, it seems is depicted as like her little fuck you to Vasily Nikolaevich. Yeah. Where, so Vasily Nikolaevich, the first scene between the two of them, he comes up while she is making tea in the shitty American oh way. Oh my God. Like cutting corners early in the episode. And Vasily Nikolaevich's um, attempt to creepily flirt with her is showing her the like old fashioned Russian way to make tea. Then cut to the next scene where, um, where Nina gives him oral sex and then Vasily Nikolaevich walks out of the room, says some weird shit that we can get into is to like, thank you for the kindness you did to me. Well, because this. like her, she comes in and is like, I think we're both a little lonely. And I was like, oh, yeah. no, come on. That's a terrible line. Yep. Um, and then Nina takes the tea that's in the mug, yeah. like swirls it around and spits it back out and makes a face. Yeah. Right? So like, here's, you know, take your tea and fuck off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like inch, um, after the blowjobs. So. But also like, like again, Nina being like, I knew what you were after from the jump. And yes. like, I like, totally. I, you, it was a little bit of like, you're walking out of here thinking like you manipulated me or like. I did a kindness to you and like, I'm manipulating you. Like that's yes. what's happening here. Yes. Thank you for your kindness in a difficult time. You know, who's having a difficult time? Nina Sergeyevna. <laughs> Real true. Ugh. And I, this is like, I feel like every episode I'm like, not sure if I hate Stan or if I like him. That's going to be a running theme of our <laughs> next 17 years together talking about this Amazing. Show. Well, and I feel like this was Stan performing patriarchy in the, like, I am your protector. Like, I am, I am the wall protecting you. Yes. Everybody loves freedom on the other side of this wall. But, like, Stan is the one who is putting her in the place of requiring protection, right? Like... Mm -hmm. And and he doesn't seem able or 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 capable of of like owning up to his his like the violence of his role in that. I think that's exactly right, because, and including because he follows up with "I'm a wall protecting you," and I believe his very next line is "You're beautiful." Yes, I right. So he gets, <laughs> but he gets both the bullshit protection racket masculinity. And the like cliched cloying bad masculinity too. Yeah, and then this was a another like just like superstar Nina moment where she was where Stan's like then trying to like say trust me to her in Russian or that's what I understood from there. Yes, and you right. can tell us translation watch with <laughs> <laughs> John McMahon you can let us know if that's right. But I'll pass on that one. <laughs> Nina Nina coming back and, and being like, it's not it's not, oh trust me, it's trust me like like a forceful thing. It's yeah. Like she is so aware of what of what he's doing and like I 
I don't think that that Stan is, I think this is another like place of willful ignorance of Stan. Like it is easy for him to know that he is in the role of coercer, but he is. And like, I think when we see him later trying to learn Russian and like you're the, you're beautiful stuff, like the, I it's there. It, the line between like, this is my job and this is my life. It seems like with Stan, it just keeps getting blurrier. And the stuff with Nina feels like that's exactly where we see the effects of those, of that, those blurred lines. Yeah. And the show in this episode also confounds maybe, or maybe this is trying to like have its cake and eat it too of depicting the masculine violence. Mm -hmm. And then also there's this early scene in the FBI office. It cuts to Martha who has gotten some like fancy new heels for, as we later (laughs) find out Clark is coming over on one of his Clark Phillips slash (laughs) Philip is coming over in one of his regular visits and Amador is like, I tried to get her to wear nice shoes like that again and again. And I try, keep trying to ask her out. And, uh, she, you know, he says something to Martha as she walks by, he and Gad and, uh, and Stan are talking and he says something that's sexist, like common workplace patriarchal sexism. Yeah. And Martha's like, that's offensive, Agent Amador. And Gad is like, that is offensive. <laughs> we are going to respect everybody here. Martha like walks away triumphantly and Gad like gives the most exaggerated eye roll possible. I feel like that like workplace sexism could be in nostalgia for the unremembered. <laughs> or like today (laughs) or like you know colleagues at institutions oh my god but i think like the um the stuff with like that interaction with martha which is basically like it's not the very beginning of the episode but it's pretty early on yeah and that just sets up so that sets up like the like i would say the major like thematic thread for the episode which is just like patriarchy male rage uh like mm-hmm. problematic gender relationship gendered relationships yes i think you're right about that because the cut is from vasily nikolaevich quote-unquote teaching nina sergeyevna how to make tea properly to the scene with martha in the office to stan and nina's first meet i'm a wall protecting you yeah you're beautiful well, and like maybe it's worth here shifting gears to talk a little bit about the Elizabeth Claudia um, dynamic, just because mm-hmm. I think that is like the only t- besides the beginning of the episode where like Stan and Philip pull up in their like bro car, um, like no, I won, no, it was in, no, it was in, <laughs> and I was like, I hate you guys. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, how prescient did i not realize i was being several episodes ago when i <laughs> joked about the masculine urge to play racquetball <laughs> actually it's like i forgot i did not remember that in <laughs> fact the show is using the masculine urge to play racquetball <laughs> as a window into the violence of masculinity it's okay it was it, it was imprinted on your soul so you you gave it to us even before we we got to this particular idealized moment of it um, but the, like, the Claudia Elizabeth dynamic, which, mm-hmm. like, is also, like, at the beginning of his, of the episode where Claudia is, like, 
I became his friend. And then the sort of, if we are getting between the various like heterosexual couples or couplings, this sort of like masculine rage, patriarchy dynamic, the Claudia Elizabeth conversations like draw us into thinking about friendship, but also like the manipulation of friendship and that yeah. was just like just really depressing. <laughs> yeah, especially because Claudia is calling attention to the way the Soviets are running agents compared to the way the Americans do. Yeah. Like the Americans have any of the officers can run the agents and she tells Elizabeth that there's no real bond. Who else is an agent that is having a handler in that scene? Oh, it's Claudia and Elizabeth. Yeah. Gee, I wonder what Claudia is doing in huh. the attempt to, you know, form this quote-unquote bond with Elizabeth. A bond that does, though, as we talked a little about this last week with regards to the Stalingrad conversation, um, that does in some ways make sense as like a source of these two yeah. women spies having to trade on the way or we assume this about claudia yeah or assume this about her in berlin um i have to trade on their femininity in order to secure their nationalistic objectives yeah and it is i'm not going to go too deep into this comparison but it's it it's a little bit striking with the stuff that's going on in this season of euphoria which is a show that is like very much set in the present moment where once again, like women's bodies are, are like, are, are being used as a currency. So I think like the. Can I stick with the euphoria point? Yeah, go for it. Before you make your point. And that's another show that to a greater degree than the Americans raises this question. And this is something you brought up a little bit before we got on air of depicting and critiquing gendered violence exactly compare and how close does one get to sensationalizing or aestheticizing or like alluring making alluring that same violence and that's a line that this episode has trouble walking yeah and i so that's exactly where i was gonna go and i think like the point that you make about the aestheticizing but but like I think oftentimes the show is like aware of the commentary it is offering or generating Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like the, like with gender and sexuality, those are, it doesn't feel like the show is as aware of its place in the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something to me, there's something, something deeply uncomfortable about that. And I think something that's striking is we still get those undercurrents with Claudia and Elizabeth, even though there isn't the like, you know, the, perhaps the sexual tension or the absence of sexual tension Mm -hmm. that we get with the various other couplings that we sort of have in the show. Yeah. There's one other coupling that we haven't talked about so much, and that is the Clark and Martha. Oh yeah. Because we do get a Clark Martha scene (laughs) In which we should point out that Clark slash Philip is engaging his own kind of nebbishy nerd masculinity yeah. to still pursue a patriarchal objective. Yes. 
Except this time it's the, like, kissing Martha and then withholding. And yeah. Like, I can't do this, but I'm going to be flirty and I'm going to comment on your shoes like Amador did when he got called out for being sexist. Yeah. 10 minutes or 15 minutes earlier. So there's still that engagement with the ways that that form of masculinity engages in its own kind of manipulation and coercion. How long are we supposed to, like, to me, the Clark-Martha coupling strikes me as, like, this has been going on for a while, right? Like, yes. but this isn't, this is obviously not the first time they've, that they've met. We've also seen them in the show. But my sense, even from the first meeting that we're privy to, is that, like, this is something that has been, like, bubbling for a bit. Clearly. I mean, this is, this has all the trappings of like a quote-unquote date in the most cliched way yeah martha uh bought the fancy new shoes and they're having a couple glasses of wine and they're sitting on the couch and clark's being flirty and like it's so yeah there's it's been going on a long time and clark has been willing to we're led to believe encourage the like flirty sexual undertones. Right. Well, and it's interesting. Oh, help secure his purpose. Yeah. And it's interesting there because like in stark contrast to when Elizabeth is like sort of engaging her like flirtation, her femininity, her sexuality as a means to like accomplish some mission related goal. It's always like in a hotel room or like, you know, that, like, she's the the bad girl or she's someone that they shouldn't be sleeping with or that, that they've, like, picked up in a bar. Whereas with Philip, it's this, like, it's a longer game. And there's something incredibly pointed about that juxtaposition, I think. There is. And it's a juxtaposition that we get a little contrast with even within Elizabeth's storyline in this episode because mm-hmm. her non-sexualized running of a target slash agent is this opening scene where she pretends to be a like security right. counterintelligence person talking to the defense contractor guy whose right. wife has died and does so in his home there on his couch except there's zero flirtation. There's zero kind of sexuality that's viewed into this episode, except for that Elizabeth then gets in the car with Claudia later on. And is like, I could have broken him in 30 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, I hadn't thought about that scene in relation to how we typically like see Elizabeth. Neither had I until you made your good point. (laughs) So the credit is still all yours. Do not worry. I'll take it. Don't worry about it. Um, anything else that we want to throw out in terms of like general themes? I mean, we probably should talk about what is ostensibly the main spy storyline season within the, within, within the season long plot storyline in this episode, which is this defense contractor who is like the prime Soviet agent in one of the companies that is working on the ballistic missile defense system. His wife has died. He's falling apart. Because of FBI new technologies and surveillance, he can't meet Vasily Nikolaevich, right. who, who is his handler, who is uh, running him. He's freaking out. The Soviets are worried that he's freaking out and going to crack and bring the whole thing down. 
simultaneously. The FBI thinks they're close to figuring all this out and think they've gotten one over on the Soviets. And so it goes back and forth. And like everybody is talking about this guy. He gets very, very little actual time, screen time, airtime, lines to read, except for a very, very nervous conversation with the excuse me, with Vasily Nikolaevich right. and the initial chat between him and Elizabeth where he's very kind of demure and silent and passive. And like grieving, right? And that grieving. That's sort of like how we meet him is that he's grieving his wife. Yeah. I will say that I... <laughs> I, I love a phone booth. I love anything that's happening <laughs> in a phone booth. Um... And I love that it was like, oh, and we like, we picked up a conversation, like the spycraft of all that was just, uh, I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, this was, this is interesting because for me, for someone who's just watching the show for the first time, I get real, I've been getting really sucked into the like relationships of the people that we keep meeting and, or that like keep coming up. And so I think like I am less paying attention to the like story of the week part of it. Yeah. Or the, the, like the bigger plot story of the week stuff. Um, but I thought that like this having an agent who's nervous, who like needs to be coddled feels Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. and who, and like, in this moment where we're just coming off of the episode, the last episode where like, there's the whole to do with Reagan and, you know, things almost really blow up. And so this is sort of an interesting follow-up. It's a little bit quieter, but the stakes again, like the stakes season long are still so high. Right. And they're so high in terms of, you know, at one point there's this very brief scene between Vasily Nikolaevich and Arkady Ivanovich, and they're talking about how if this agent, Udacha, goes down, then we lose the whole network with yeah. him. So we're given those stakes <laughs> in they- terms of, like, the Soviets' perspective. And the stakes ultimately are that cl- presumably Claudia and Philip and Elizabeth decide to kill him yeah. rather than have him be captured by the FBI because at the very end of the episode, because there's a mole in the Residentura, uh, i.e. Mina, the FBI knows that the Soviets have picked up their new like surveillance yeah. technology and the trunks of the cars with a scene that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, and so Elizabeth, before Dorwin, Adam Dorwin is the name of the character. Okay. Um, before Dorwin can meet up with Vasily Nikolaevich, who is indeed under FBI surveillance by Stan and Chris, Elizabeth, before he can turn the corner at what I'm assuming is Brooklyn Navy Yard was my guess, but it's the Potomac River, um, shoots him with a silencer cut to the birds flying away. Yeah. Like classic cinematic scene. Classic cinematic scene. And yeah, and so like we get the uh, the first thing I thought of when the birds when the birds flew away and we sort of see Elizabeth walk away, I was like, well, I guess the stakes I guess like losing that whole network was worth it. Like mm-hmm. which it's a tough decision, but it seems like the right one, right? If we're following along with their with their storyline, like it seems like 
like the way to go. I have thoughts on on moles, but we'll get to that in Danielle Dossier. <laughs> yeah, there's always thoughts on who's a mole in Danielle Dossier. It's never quite what it seems. <laughs> yeah. There's a and and throughout this all the Selena Glyevich is just gazing, right? Stands like that's the only word to describe what he's doing um, <laughs> as he waits for Dorwin to, who we're led to believe is perhaps the first agent that the Selena Glyevich ever recruited. Yeah, well, because we, we learned that, that he recruited him while Nikolaevich was like on Student. study abroad, and yeah. so, which like. I have I have questions about that. Also, Vasily oh, Nikolaevich seems old, and like like how long was this dude in the American bureaucracy? If like already back then he was like being recruited. Good question. This has got to be at least twenty five years. No, I think I think he says. Oh, he says twenty three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Vasily Nikolaevich is older than 45. I just want to like for sure make that clear. He's in his mid to late 50s, I think. 1 million percent. We're led to assume. Yeah. And maybe that's a place to end. We're going to revisit a couple of these scenes and themes a little bit later on in the episode. But before we do that, let's get into some of the other segments. Yes. And the first one, of course, is Bar Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. which. This is an opportunity, as it has been in the past, to discuss the aesthetics of the Soviet embassy slash Soviet <laughs> aesthetics more broadly. Um, uh, the marble stairway in the KGB resident tour at the Soviet embassy is out of this world. <laughs> it also is something that felt very in character based on four months living in St. Petersburg uh, in 2007. Um, I went to lots of ornate museums and historical buildings and such with a lot of marble staircases. Of course, you also get some classic Lenin iconography Obviously. in this episode. And it's, I'm sure they have historical stuff or they were working off of historical documents because it looks like the things that I saw in museums or I've been to Lenin's hometown in Russia on the Volga River. Of course you (laughs) have. Um, (laughs) And uh, been to like the Lenin Museum, saw the house he grew up in, the whole thing. And let's just say I was getting some resonances when we toured the marble staircase in the <laughs> hall of iconography in this episode. Listen, I was So really this is nostalgia for my remembered yeah. 2007. <laughs> um, and we're just shoehorning that in to borrow nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. I'll take it. I think the the thing that jumps out that like in terms of Soviet aesthetics that jumps out at me is I have never been to um, Russia or any of the other uh, parts of the former Soviet Union. But I did live in Israel for a long time, and there are a lot of Russians there. And I feel like every, like, every Russian friend's parents had boxes, like the one that Vasily like pulls the tea out of, like, and they and which are probably still from the eighties that they like now like refill with tea. So like, I think the the aesthetics in terms of like what's going on in the office and the like products that they have alongside the marble and the statues or like the bus, like really does feel like very Soviet. (laughs) 
because you get the you get the contrast of the ornate wood carpet, dark carpet bookshelves of the Residentura itself. And then you have this gleaming white yeah. gray marble staircase yeah. with a weird colored window panel in there yeah. for reasons that I don't understand. Yeah. You gotta you love to see it. You love to see it. I would say the, okay, so stepping away from Soviet aesthetics for a moment, <laughs> but stepping back into another area that I feel like we feel very comfortable in <laughs> is like wig check 2022. We feel very comfortable. We feel very comfortable in it. So we've got so many wigs in so this. So many wigs. So What's I. What's your favorite single wig in this episode? I think the like blonde dirtbag Philip wig when they're at the car like uh, mechanic <laughs> is my favorite. <laughs> it, it's like Philip was uh, like 20, uh, like, like 2006. Uh, six era indie rocker with blonde hair, <laughs> except he's forty five and wearing a shitty suit from the eighties. Yes, and that's like, the look. And the thing is, is that like Matthew- Julian Casablanca is welcome to <laughs> welcome to nineteen eighty one. Matthew Reese, right? That's how you say his name. Yes. Matthew Reese is an attractive human being, and they don't let him do it. But he show. somehow. Every time he's in a wig, looks bedraggled. <laughs> like, like an appropriate terminology. Like, and it's just, it's like a cinematic masterpiece to make someone so beautiful look so bad. <laughs> so yeah. that's my favorite wig. We also get, he's also got the wig that he has on um, with Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, which a like bull blonde nightmare. Yeah, he's um. he pulls off a blonde wig sort of amazingly in a terrible way. Um, we also, I also, we get the wig that Elizabeth is in. Um, when she's with the security dude before the one where who hits her with the belt, like yeah, that wig. We'll get into this in Daniel Dossier also, but, like, that wig is possibly the most terrible wig that we've seen so far. That wig looks like a wig. Usually when Elizabeth's in a wig, it's like, okay, like, you just look a little bit different than yourself. But this one looked like she literally put it on her head as she was walking into whatever seedy bar she met him in. Yeah. There's also a different style of Elizabeth Elizabeth wig. Yeah, a little bit of it previous episode when she pretended to be vice president chief of staff or whatever (laughs) but the wig that she wears like a time very tight bob but it's a little bit pulled back at the very beginning when she goes to dorwin's house did you have a name for that wig the like cliche librarian (laughs) i feel like we can't rob our listeners all three of them um (laughs) My Hi. sisters that I forced to make <laughs> listen to them. <laughs> well, four, because producer Amy actually has to listen to this episode. That is true. Um, but I felt like we couldn't rob our listeners of your brilliant uh, categorization of that way. Brilliant wig. is very generous. <laughs> we like we like generous here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'd like to point out there are some, there's some more non-brilliancies in this episode, which brings us to our next segment. Uh what a segue. Segway king. Um, okay, minor character of the week. So definitely like the least brilliant in the entire episode. My minor character of the week award goes to the FBI agents who are just like lollydolling around at the car mechanic. Smoking cigs with dirtbag Philip. 
Elizabeth straight up climbs out of one car and into another car. While they're both lifted. Like while all they're the way lifted in the air. With like Mission Impossible style, but with yeah. no clips and hooks. And she's just slithering down. Jumps from one car to the next. Like slides down and climbs on in. Like an episode of like the challenge. Like who can get into the car without making any noise. <laughs> That made me really excited when Danielle makes me watch an episode of The Challenge. Oh my god! Podcast, circa summer 2022. Get ready, folks, because <laughs> I've got chat. If you think that the gender dynamics of this, like, quite exquisitely executed Prestige-y-tivy show, yeah. are something to talk about, wait till we get to the challenge. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, yeah, but the so minor character of the week is the FBI agents who, unbeknownst to them, this is just all happening above their heads. Um, yeah. but it does lead to I, one of the best scenes. IMDB literally lists them as FBI guy one, <laughs> FBI guy two. So it's like the pure definition of minor character and pure definition of what are these motherfuckers actually doing? What are they doing? But also, like, how did the car... They got the car down and out so quickly. I was like, this feels unbelievable. But I guess we needed a plot device to have Elizabeth stuck in this car. Did you find anything else unbelievable in the Daniel dossier this week? Oh, yes. So now let's get back into Elizabeth's wigs. Okay. I'm... Okay. So... This is, like, definitely a two-segment conversation. So I'm glad we're... Yeah. We're doing We got to get into this. I... Every time Elizabeth has a wig on, I'm like, well, she's got a lot of hair underneath there. And it doesn't... Right? It doesn't seem like she's, like, taking the time to put a stocking on. Uh, so when is this wig going to come off? And I really thought that when she's in the hotel room with the security guard, I thought the wig is coming off for sure. He's throwing her around. I'm like, that thing's not on that securely. Like... Some usually when Elizabeth's got a wig on, it's like okay, it's a wig, but like it looks on, it looks tight. This one had pieces of it, like looked like it was shifting as the episode was going, and I'm like, okay, countdown to the wig falling off. So I feel like part of Danielle Dossier is going to have to be a check in on like, did we think the wigs were going to fall off this week? And like, I really thought that that wig was coming off. I will, I will say, not in what form or direction or characters or how. There, is, there are a couple partial scenes of some wig mechanics that we will witness at some point. Which oh, will I love it. Which will which might destroy the Daniel Dossier section. It's okay, um, but that's it well, might listen, be necessary. We will find other things to put <laughs> there in will the be dossier. More conspiracies. Do not. Do worry. you have anything else to add to the dossier this week? Yes, I have. Here, this is an important. This listen, wigs are all all in good fun, but here's what's important. Go the on. episode ends, and we get the question um, from Arcadi, right? We get it. A we get the ex- times. we get, we get the Claudia. We get Claudia to Philip, Philip to Elizabeth, <laughs> and then Arcadi and the silly. Right. So it's like, who's the mole? And I, you know, I think we are supposed to believe that it's Nina, but I am here to say that like it can't be that easy. It can't just be Nina. 
there's some, there's another, there's either another mole, there's a fake out, like something else is going on. Like someone else, like there's gotta be something else. So I'm here to say that like, I am not settling for Nina as the mole and that's it. So you're not denying Nina's qualities role in the show here, but you're saying that there is, that the show is, is having fun at our expense by being like, you are smart listener. You know what they're talking about. They're talking about Nina, but in fact, there's more going on. Yes. So like maybe Nina is, is like, we're supposed to understand Nina as the mole and maybe she even is playing that role, but I like she is right. Yeah. Which I, but I refuse to believe that like, she's the, that that's where the buck stops. (laughs) I like this theory for you. I like this theory for us. (laughs) (laughs) Two different personal pronouns in use there. There you go. Um, All right. Should we get into, into some of the gloss? Yes. We have a lot, I think, for gloss this week. um, Because there was a lot of gendered violence to talk about over in the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The name of this episode is Comment, which is short for Communications Intelligence. And this whole episode is about not like... Plot-wise, yes, it's about communications intelligence. Can the FBI intercept uh, the F- the Soviet agents? Can the Soviet tech teams like decode and, and uh, you know unencrypt the FBI surveillance code? All of that is true, but also the like communications intelligence of these conversations between particularly Stan and Nina, which are about language and are about like saying things the right way and the right tone. There's a lot of other meanings to communications intelligence in this episode is all I would like to say. I am on board with that. And you know that I love a like deep dive into meaning and signification. Like I'm, I love it so much. A, a real saucer over here, uh, Danielle. If Henry. you will, and I will. <laughs> I will, uh, <laughs> no, clearly. Um, yeah, but I think also, like, it sort of in the vein that we were discussing last episode, like, the title of the last episode, right, is In Control, and we were asking who's in control. No and one. If, <laughs> no one. And what if... <laughs> well... Obviously. And this episode, communications uh, intelligence, right, is is yet again pushing us to think about, like, how is that title, like, pointing us to various layers of these interactions? Um, Just yet again, like an expertly chosen title. So I'm still on team title on this on this show. Great. That'll be true of next episode as well. We can have fun with that next episode for sure. We should talk a little bit more about the mechanics of the scene where Elizabeth is oh in my the God. car. I- and the again, just the staging of her climbing across in the Amazing. mechanics garage. Incredible. She's riding in the back of the FBI car back to, we don't know if it's DC or like FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia or wherever. Um, Philip somehow knows exactly where she's going. Um, and knows where there's a coffee shop right yeah, down the can road. Yeah, get a coffee shop and a <laughs> vanilla cream bam donut or something. I mean, in. Uh, great. Good, good job, Philip. Um, which he uses to apologize for being a, like, masculine rage bro. Fine, I guess. I guess um, I would also take that as an apology, which I don't know what that says about me. 
<laughs> our guest next week will have a theory about what that says about you. But oh we my god! Um, and then, and the most, as you pointed out, there's some severe implausibility in this scene or series of scenes. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Elizabeth just like you know she kind of checks to see if the coast is a little bit oh my god it just like hops out of the car in broad daylight broad broad daylight wait till it's i was like okay we're gonna have to like wait till it's dark and then she just gets out of the car yeah yeah fixes her hair like walks normally right out through the security gate no problem phillips around the corner with his with the coffee and the donut for her like what what is happening deeply implausible however it does um it does introduce one of my favorite modes of spycraft please which is not the red flashlight though i do like that too <laughs> but the like the thing that we make that you make an imprint of something with, right? Like that, like little case that makes an imprint. I think maybe we've seen it in an earlier episode with a key or something like that, but like, or maybe I just watched too many shows about spies. I've definitely, I think they definitely do like key imprints in a clay situation yeah, so later that's, on in the American, but okay. maybe it happened already too. But so I, I love that because I'm like, all right, well, what's she going to do? Steal it? Like that you can't, the problem with this stuff is you can't steal things like that. And I was like, oh, clay imprints. <laughs> so and I just, I, again, like the, the, the like subtle details of that, yeah. like and make the, me excited. And the tactile materiality of yes. it, which I believe we have referenced. Yes. We love materiality. Yeah. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth was, like, doing her thing for longer than 45 seconds. So even if they hadn't – Philip is like, you have 45 seconds to get in and out of this trunk. Even if they hadn't been like, we're bringing the car down and rolling out of here, FBI guy one and two, she was definitely there doing this longer than 45 seconds. I just want to say, I feel like listeners are getting a good sense of like what gives me anxiety because like he said 45 (laughs) seconds and I was like, okay. And then it took her 45 seconds to extract herself from one car and get halfway over to the other car. I was like, we're not doing this in 45 seconds. And then when she gets into the trunk and she's like, got the flashlight and like is figuring out what to take. I was like, all of this, you need like 10 minutes in this car. 40, 45 seconds. You can't even get yourself out of one car. Like, are you kidding me? I was like, okay, this was poor planning. It worked. I mean, we did get Elizabeth slip slip sliding down the down yeah. the the face of the car, which I appreciated. But you yeah. know, yeah, real as you pointed out, I think already in this episode, real mission Mission Impossible without a safety net. And like, I'll take it, right? If we're gonna get yeah, more Elizabeth, yeah. like doing Mission Impossible like body stunts, cool. But yeah. uh, producers, we're we're on you about this one. <laughs> <laughs> There's an inc- a great final brief scene where Arkady Ivanovich is like telling Vasily Nikolaevich, I, 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 or Vasily Nikolaevich is mad at Arkady Ivanovich because Arkady like communicated back to Moscow that there's a mole and Vasily's like, I should have been the one to do that. We need to be careful about how we disseminate that information. And Arkady just like reads him the riot act. Yeah. Um, and then Vasily has just like the, the strangest yeah. anger face I've ever seen in acting ever. 
Oh my God. Well, and also it's like, I was, it took me a minute to be like, okay, does Arcadi know that Facili, Facili was like getting blowjobs from Nina? Is that, is that what's going on here? Or I is don't he, think we know that. Right. And, and, but then I'm like, I don't think he knows that I should say. Right. But then I'm like, okay, so why is he going so hard on this? So I think like, again, I think this adds credence to like, there's another mole too. <laughs> and there is a, I think this is the second conflict scene we've gotten between yes. the two of them. Yes. In so far in the season. Uh, so that, that's, I think builds your Daniel dossier case. Listen, we're all just building cases. Um, I, you have a note here that you want to talk about two more notes. Yes. Yeah. One that is one that we didn't get to earlier. So one that we didn't get to earlier is just they're really having fun with cutting from one scene to the next and yeah. the shots they begin and and, and end uh, scenes on. Um, both in terms of the sound design, like there's one the first cut in the show is literally to a big thunder uh, crashing yeah. down, um, which was amusing to me. Then there's just all these scenes of like how they cut from Vasily and Nina to Martha, how they cut from Nina and Stan to Clark and Martha, how they cut from Philip and Elizabeth to Elizabeth and the security guy. Like just they're, they're really, really calling attention to the connections that you were making and we were making earlier in the episode in the structure of the making of this this episode of the show. Yeah, but the cinematography is inviting us to think about the, not only the connections, but also the parallels in, and the way in which cutting from, cutting so like quickly from one scene to the next, it like allows us to, to put all of these scenes sort of like on the same, on the same surface to, mm-hmm. to like understand them together. Absolutely. And lastly, there's a lot of rain in this episode. Almost the whole episode takes place in the midst of a giant rainstorm. So much rain in so many scenes. There's a bunch of, there's like a very misty, couple misty drone shots of Washington, D.C. Yeah. That are at play here. Lots of rain everywhere. But this final or next to last scene where... Dorwin is trying to go meet with Vasily and Elizabeth shoots him is like crisp daylight and sunlight. Yeah. So I think like there is certainly some symbolism happening here, right? Like the choice is clear. Oh, like like after the murkiness of, of sort of, of the rest of the episode. But I will just say that, and this goes back to Elizabeth crawling out of the trunk in broad daylight. She also like murders this dude in broad daylight in public. Yeah. And, and like, I don't know. There's just something a little bit unbelievable about that. There is. So no, no doubt about that. <sighs> but you know, I think we have to, I'm willing to suspend disbelief for yeah. the like, the enjoyment and for figuring out who the other mole is. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately the show does so much about the intricacies of their spy craft yeah. that indulging them some more fanciful, implausible stuff is like totally fine by me. Yeah. And like, I, I guess if it wasn't 
we need the clear day for the symbolism. We also need the clear day for that, like, the shot of the birds. Yeah. Yes, we did. We <laughs> sure did. We are both going to think about that shot with uh, the birds. I love but it. The birds are free. Dorwin is not in the most extreme way. But you know what, Danielle? You know else who's not free? Any of the other characters. No one else. None of them are free as a bird. <laughs> I really They're wanted to trapped. sing Nelly Furtado there, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to. The floor is yours if you would like to. I don't want to get us sued. <laughs> <laughs> Fair use. We've got like at least 25 seconds um, bef- of it before, no. we, uh, before we get in trouble. Oh, my God. Uh, Let's get to our more... next segment. <laughs> There's one more segment. Um, we're going to the cave, and yes. we are returning to the roulette wheel sound effect we are returning to the random cave number generator and we're going to roll the hypothetical roulette wheel here and we have landed danielle on the number 12 Woo-hoo. and number 12 is uh neither of our friends uh <laughs> jean-jacques rousseau the from oh. social contracts and many other things theorist of the 18th century. Oh, Rousseau. Uh, so I, like, there are some connections here, um, I guess. There's this... <laughs> you, the, you we're not as it. excited about Rousseau as we were about Iris Marion Young last week. <laughs> um, well, last week was Schmidt. There's much oh, excitement sorry. <laughs> about uh, Herr Carl there, for sure. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, not the most exciting. I think there are some connections to make. Yeah, uh, there is a connection that has something to do with, like, the way that he. I mean, what's the famous opening line of the social contract? Something like, "Man is born mm-hmm. free, yet he is everywhere in chains." Yeah, something. Something. Man is born effect. free, yet everywhere he is in chains. There we go, um, Danielle. I think probably more of a Rousseau expert than I would be. My I guess. wouldn't say. Here's the thing. I do have a certain soft spot for Rousseau, but not the social contract Rousseau. I love essay on the origin of languages. <laughs> yeah. Do you also love the letter to D'Alembert? That I love also, the that'd be my to guess for number, for number two well, of Danielle Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Well, I, so I love the letter, the essay on the origin of languages. John knows this, but the essay is, I would say, a more obscure piece of Rousseau's, and I have multiple <laughs> oh, times really? required students to read it, no. much to their dismay. <laughs> Danielle is a wonderful, brilliant teacher, <laughs> and the one exception to that in her entire pedagogical life <laughs> has been making the students read Rousseau's essay on the word. Oh, my language. gosh. But the, here's the thing, right, which is maybe this is actually, I'm going to, I'll take this, I'll take a here and then you can get into some of the more standard Rousseau for us. Um, but we talked a little bit about thing about words and communication and things having different kinds of meaning and what are we communicating and how do we communicate to one another? And I think the scene with Nina and Stan where she's like, you know, you're saying you're using these words to say, no, trust me in a kind way, but those words mean trust me in a coercive way. Like Mm -hmm. that is precisely what Rousseau is interested in, not only in the essay on the origin of languages and the way in which humans evolve, the way in which like communication evolves 
out of the sort of scattering of humans away from each other, which I do think like there that's happening in this episode. And it's part of how, when we come back together, we don't know how to communicate with each other anymore. And so we use these words, which is sort of an alienated way of, of expressing our emotions, which I think is interesting in this episode, especially an episode about rage. Um, I did have a joke canned ready to go um, <laughs> about, uh, and then I realized that he isn't actually on our list, but it was a Wittgenstein joke I had oh. ready to go, but there's no Wittgenstein on the political theory random number. We got to put Wittgenstein list. on the list. Uh, you, <laughs> you, think I can, that. you think that I can, I can wax poetically about essay on the origin of languages? Bring me philosophical investigations. <laughs> It was going to be a bad language games joke about Nina and Stan. That was, that I mean, was, seems like a great you know. joke. So I think the other, well, there are a couple other places to go with Rousseau. One is we had kind of been saving for whoever the random number generator theorist uh, brought up a brief comment that, or point that Claudia makes yeah. to Elizabeth. So we actually were like, all right, let's transcribe this uh, to bring into the cave, whoever we are is joining us in the cave. So this is Claudia talking to Elizabeth after Elizabeth has been beaten. Claudia, yeah. I'm just like, I know that something's wrong. They go back and forth a little bit. And then Claudia says the following quote, I won't say this job is twice as hard for women, but it's something close to that. Have you been following the sad progress of this country's equal rights amendment? Honestly, it makes me chuckle. These women here need to learn what you and I have known forever. You can't wait for the laws to give you your rights. You have to take them, claim them every second of every day of every year. And there's something about that, like the active assertion of, uh, of, of, seeking and claiming one's rights on a daily basis that could, we could shoehorn into a Rousseau point. If Rousseau wasn't one of the most sexist of (laughs) all of the sexist fucking enlightenment and Western canon guys. Well, and like I have taught a class called gender and political theory a number of times over the last few years. And I can't remember, it must have been the first time I taught it. I taught Rousseau's Emile, which is like where he lays out the roots of sexism. (laughs) It's just like women, stupid, like too connected to their bodies, like can't be citizens. Um, And so it's, it's, I think like, and, and the students hated it. They, they hated it so much and they couldn't see past their hate to, to engage it which I think is telling. And I think that also is kind of like ironic that we ended up on Rousseau on this day. Where we're like, Oh, there, there is this great quote about the equal rights amendment that probably has some resonance to political theory. And Rousseau's yeah. like <laughs> women. <laughs> Citizens of Geneva. Yes. You claim your rights every day, you know, every second of every day of every year, uh, but no one else it is. And if we can, you know, go back to actually the, beginning of the episode quickly again you know you raise the point of the way the show is engaging with these depictions of male violence yeah. kind of what its perspective is on yeah. it and so i think that these lines about the era from claudia are perhaps meant to be the one place where we're like internal to the show itself maybe they have some sort of perspective on all of the patriarchal violence yeah. of the rest of the episode. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like it's not 
that the that awareness is not fully absent from the episode, but perhaps like my frustration is that it's not present enough to satisfy me, which I think yep. like if we want That's to totally legit. Yeah, and if we want to like I think there is some the 80s of it all is doing some like justification work there. Yeah, and it also goes back to the conversation we had much earlier on about the way that the Soviets used like questions of quote unquote equality as propaganda. Right. Right. And, you know, <laughs> Claudia is like, I can't believe that they can't even pass an equal rights amendment in this country. You know, here we are 40 years later or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, West Virginia just rescinded their state's maybe okay. ratification of the equal rights amendment like last week or earlier this week or whatever. Um, is 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 a is a all I want to run another Rousseau possibility by you. Yeah, do it. Is there an all spying is like the uh, logical conclusion of a more de soir? Is that is that take available for us? I think so. I think okay. so. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to just like? Ex- Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to. No, it's 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 right. If I am remembering my discourse on the origins of inequality correctly, right, it's this notion that whereas there's a there's a more probe, right? This love of self yeah. that is tied to self preservation that involves some yeah. sort of pity for others, but it's not particularly other regarding. Yeah. Um, and then there is Amor de Soi, which happens when you start getting communities and such, and people are concerned about their perception, their reputation. Yeah. It's more surface level. Yeah. Right. And so there's this, like, it's a layers on t- of the self on top of one another, um, which takes people away and men away from their or slash our particular humanity um, and helps deliver us from, you know, the relative freedom of Rousseau's state of nature to the, what he calls civil slavery in a, you know. Yeah. Can't be a critic of actual slavery, but we can metaphorize everything as slavery. I mean, hello, hello Rousseau. 18th century. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think also, right, like, and 19th there and, and 20th century. And 21st. <laughs> and I think, like, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Rousseau because on the one hand, there are, like, all of this stuff that we have been talking about that is deeply frustrating about his work. On the other hand, there is this sort of, like, incredibly elegant, like, it's liberty but not liberty or, like, it's more, like, yes, there is natural liberty in the state of nature, but in civil society, we get civil and moral liberty and, like, Mm -hmm. that, and for Rousseau, that trade-off is, um, that trade-off is important and worthwhile, though yes. Rousseau, more than Locke and more than Hobbes, who are probably the other two like big social contract thinkers and probably the ones that we teach alongside Rousseau the most often. Um, but Rousseau does sort of have this nostalgia for the the sort the state of nature. And it's not exactly that he wants us to go back to a state of natural liberty. We can't, right? We can't, but but he 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 yearns for some of the pieces of it. And so I think like thinking about spycraft as the as this extension here reminds us or perhaps clues us into part of that yearning that Rousseau has for the sort of natural state of things. Uh, a, a simpler time. Even though we can't go back, there is still this nostalgia for that. There is. And yet we are in civil slavery. 
apparently we had more Rousseau nostalgia than we could have predicted. <laughs> I feel like that always happens. At least uh, I didn't yell about a theorist like I did last week. <laughs> What that's that's the best however many hours of podcasting you've made so far. If, they, if we ever make a clip show, we're putting the yelling about Schmidt in prime position. Oh man, it is like pretty um on brand for me. So I'll take very, it. Very, very true. I think that's probably it for this episode. Yeah, I think we've uh you know, listen, we descended into the cave. We got ourselves out of the cave. Uh, I think Jean-Jacques we can also leave in there with Carl. Jean-Jacques is also chained to the wall with our friend Carl Schmidt. Iris Marion Young is hanging out with us outside the cave. I w- we're like, we're picnicking by the lake. Oh. There's the tree. We're enjoying the sun. We like, are chilling. Yes. I would say like Plato is like hovering around the entrance to the cave. Yeah. He's, yeah, he can't hang out with us in Iris Marion. But he's out here. We did not send, like, you know, force. We didn't, we didn't chain him to, to a wall to look at, like, fire shadows. And Nietzsche was like, fuck it, I'm out of here. Goodbye, cave. Goodbye, wake. I'm, I'm going up to the mountain. Yeah. Nietzsche, Nietzsche was like, I'm out. Like, you're not enough for me. (laughs) We get it. We get it. (laughs) Zarathustra. Okay. Podcasts are not Nietzsche's vibe. Definitely not. Um, definitely not. Um, so I think next episode we have a special treat yes. for listeners in that it should be our first of the occasional guests on not quite great books, a TV podcast. Um, we've alluded to the mythical producer, Amy, Yes, who may or may not be our producer, but who does exist. <laughs> definitely exists. And will we think be joining us on the very next episode. Season one, episode six, entitled Trust Me. Danielle, do you want to take any guesses about who and what is or is not to be trusted in this upcoming episode? I know this oh. is this is like me begging for bonus Danielle. Dossier. I mean, I'm like, do you want conspiracy theories? Because I've got them. <laughs> uh, it's like amazing that I'm not like a QAnon truther. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too smart for it, but like I like I love conspiracy theories. Um, any guesses on who is asking who to trust them? I want it to be Philip asking Stan to trust him. Okay, but I think that it is probably ooh maybe it's like Chris asking Nina to trust him. Maybe there's like a scuffle with Stan or something. Great prediction. Great we'll prediction. See, see what happens. So join us next time for for the first ever guest uh, and for the next episode of Not, Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. I, we're never, <laughs> I, at this point, we are committed to never doing that smoothly. <laughs> and so we're going to make the not doing it smoothly the point yes. of the outro. In great. Goodbye, listeners. Bye. <laughs>
You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have questions or comments or things you'd like us to discuss on air, subscribe, rate us, review us, tell your friends about us. You do know what to do. Thank you to the hypothetical producer, Amy. Thank you to the not-hypothetical, LSFM, for Electro Trend 60s, which you heard at the beginning of the episode and heard right now. Until next time, Dos Vidalnia.